So we say peace happens. Certainly this is our final end. God will come. He'll make peace. However, we talk about peace happening in our own lives. It doesn't just happen. Um, peace doesn't just kind of come our way naturally all the time. We often find ourselves in conflict. It requires intentionality on our part because true peace doesn't just happen. Jesus never said, blessed are the peaceful. I've seen the peaceful are blessed, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And making peace doesn't simply mean avoiding conflict, but rather resolving the conflict. So, I have a personality that has a strong aversion to conflict. Like, I'm a conflict avoider. Like, if there's something going to go down, I'm just trying to find peace, not necessarily make peace, by avoiding conflict. Um, tomorrow, as you know, is MLK Day, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And one of his favorite statements uh, is of mine is his definition of true peace. Dr. King defines true peace like this. He says, true peace is not merely the absence of some negative force, uh, tension, con confusion, or war. It is the presence of some positive force, justice, goodwill, or brotherhood. Or we might say today also sisterhood. So too many times peace and quiet are mistaken for true peace, where true peace is not peace and quiet, but rather peace and justice. As an example, between kind of that negative peace and the positive peace, we'll use something kind of domestic. So imagine we have a very authoritarian father. Kind of gets up, kind of commands his kids what to do, goes off to work, has some struggle with the boss, comes home, and the kids kind of scatter. They're quiet, so they have peace and quiet, but they're quiet not because they're, they're joyful or because they have a sense of true peace. They're quiet because they know that if they cross dad when he comes in, that they could catch it. If it's fear-based, that's not true peace. So I have a personal testimony to kind of um, confess to you. So Angela and I have been married for 26 years, and we've had kids, it seems like, that whole time. <laughs> so I feel like I've been married my whole life, I've been a father my whole life, and of course I was a father at a pretty young age. I was 19 when Katie was born. And with Katie and Hannah especially, um, I had a short temper. I thought I was just a strong disciplinarian. But a lot of it was probably misplaced aggression. You know, I'm not going to yell at my boss, I'm not going to yell at Angela. But then, what can the kids do? And so, unfortunately, uh, the two older girls had an experience that they called Dad's Evil Eye. It was like mad cleaning. Hey, it's time to clean up. Let's clean up. And um, I really felt like I'd outgrown that. I had prayed. I'd gone to seminary. Grown up, I became a minister of the gospel. I no longer had issues with impatience or anger. And then on December 12th of last year, Angela and I became foster parents. 
and I found myself sounding a lot like my old self and wondering what in the world has happened to me. Where did that come from? I just need you to listen to me. <laughs> and I walk away and I'm thinking, she's six years old. She's no threat. <laughs> so what I have to say today about peacemaking, about true peace, is not necessarily something that comes natural to me. I'm saying it because I believe the Lord has called us to it. And the standard that I'm going to talk about is a standard that I reach for, and I think by the Spirit we have the capacity for, but not necessarily something that just comes natural to us. I'd like for us to look at our key text today, coming out of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Uh, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called, this uh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no promise, or excuse me, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once uh, far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in the holy temple in the Lord, in him who are also built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. So I want to focus a bit on, on this uh, verse 14, which said, For in Christ, or for Christ is our peace, in his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. This dividing wall uh, that Paul's speaking about between the Jews and the Gentiles was more than just the metaphorical hostility between the groups the differences between the races and the ethnicities and the cultures and the religions. But actually, there was a wall, a physical wall, at the temple that separated the two. And we're going to take a look at that in just a second. But for today, since tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, I thought I might highlight for you some similarities between the Reverend Dr. King and the good Apostle Paul. So... Both men were from racial minorities, that is, 
As a Hebrew in a predominantly Greco-Roman world, Paul was a racial minority. And as an African-American in a dominant world that was not an African-American, Dr. King was a minority. So both were racial minorities. Both were very well educated. Uh, Paul had studied in Jerusalem with Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the leading scholars there. Uh, King did a PhD in theology at Boston University. Also took classes at Harvard with Paul Tillich, who he wrote his dissertation on. Um, both became ministers of the gospel. Both were known for trying to reconcile the people of God to come together. Paul's primary reconciliation was between Jews and Gentiles. King's primary, primary reconciliation was between blacks and whites. Both then not just preached about it, but they acted on it. And so you know, King marched in a variety of places. He marched in Birmingham, and he was jailed there. And from that jail cell, he wrote uh, one of the most significant pieces of, of uh, contemporary original American theology called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. Paul would also end up in jail, in jail in Rome, and from Rome he would write a number of letters. Today we call those letters Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, right, the prison epistles. But um, the, the connection of those two I think uh, bears uh, hearing not just my summary of the two, but kind of comparing them a bit. So I want you, let's listen to these two men in their own words. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is merely a necessary phase of the transition. From an obnoxious negative peace, where the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight, to a substance-filled positive peace, where all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. These words are from the Apostle Paul's final speech shared with us, with his friends in Anatolia, after which he would be jailed 
and ultimately die in Rome. I am going to Jerusalem, bound in the spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course and the ministry, which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all among you whom I have gone preaching the gospel, preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. These are the words from Dr. King's final speech shared in Memphis the night before he was assassinated. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I can only imagine that that fateful night in Memphis, having gone there to advocate for uh, equal pay amongst garbage collectors, that Dr. King could not have anticipated that that would be his last day. I say that, although those words almost sound like it, he knew it was happening soon. And then with Apostle Paul, much the same thing. He had done all of his mission trips. Paul's an older man by this point, and he's in Anatolia, uh, modern-day Turkey. He's made his way from Ephesus down to Miletus, where he's getting ready to depart. And he calls for the elders of the church to Ephesus to come down to Miletus to see him. And his final words are, hey, look, I don't know what the future holds, but I know the Spirit's guiding me back to Jerusalem, and this will be the last time I see you. At the end of that passage, it says that he knelt in prayer and they all prayed for him and that their hearts were heavy because Paul had said, this is the last time you'll see my face. Of course, Paul goes on back to Jerusalem. Um, he gets another warning along the way. There's this prophet, his name was Agabus, who walked up to Paul. He took off Paul's belt. He tied himself up in it and said, this is going to happen to you, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. Prophets are kind of weird, you know. They do kind of crazy things like that. Um, but Paul goes anyway, right? So he makes his way to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He prepares himself to make the, the sacrifice, which was the Jewish custom. Interesting that you had uh, early Christians still sacrificing, including Paul. He's on his way to the temple to sacrifice. That's another lesson. So he gets there, and... And things kind of blow up. Uh, he had been in town with a friend of his named Trophimus. And Trophimus was an Ephesian, a Gentile. And so they see Paul at the temple and they think that, oh yeah, here's that troublemaker. 
here's that guy that's trying to say we're all equal, we're all one, and it's not just the Jews that are God's people, but he wants to choose everybody. And, and he gets accused of taking Trophimus, his friend, across the segregation line into the court of the Jews. So they grab him. And they're yelling at him, and they're beating him. And then uh, from a distance, uh, there's a, a fortress, and the Roman soldiers come down. In fact, I have a, a picture for you to look at so you can see what was going on here. So this is a model of, of the uh, temple during the time of uh, Paul, also during the time of Jesus. It's kind of zoomed in, kind of tight. But this, this large building here was the actual sanctuary. Inside was the holy place and the holy of holies. Outside here would have been the uh, burnt um, offering where they burnt the sacrifices. But this, this wall around it kind of separated the court of the Jews where only Jews were allowed and the larger court. Now just off the picture here is another part of the colonnade where the Sanhedrin would meet and court would be held. And on the north end, you can see it looks like a little castle. This was the Antonian Fortress built by Herod the Great named after his friend, Mark Anthony. Like, not the one that was married to J-Lo, but the one who was married to uh, Cleopatra. Right. I thought you might be confused on that one. So, um, I mean, it's here that Jesus would have been tried before Pilate. It was there that Jesus would have been whipped just a, a few 30 or 40 years before this. Um, so, Paul's down here. And he's, he's getting beat up by, by his uh, fellow um, uh, Jewish uh, people. And so the Roman soldiers come down and they're going to break it up. And they're going to say, come on guys, you have to stop. Um, there was a sign, uh, according to the literature, there were three signs that basically said um, Gentiles cannot enter and you enter at the risk of your own life. We actually found one of them. Uh, this is it. This is a picture of it anyway. Uh, and it, that's what it says. You, Gentiles are not allowed to enter into the court of the Jews, and they do so at their own risk, or risk of their own life. Kind of like, you know, you had uh, bathrooms or water fountains or restaurants that said whites only or colored only. Um, it wasn't just um, an idea of segregation. It was a deeply practiced, uh, very visible, uh, with signs and all. And so they grab, they grab Paul, and he looks at the Roman soldier and he speaks to him. And we don't know what he said, but Luke does tell us that the soldier responds, Oh, you speak Greek? So apparently, the conversation, the argument between Paul and his fellow Jews must have been going, going on in Aramaic or perhaps Hebrew. But yes, he speaks to the soldier in Greek. And um, so they arrest Paul and they bring him away. And the... The proconsul, kind of like the captain, kind of says, well, I'll tell you what, we should just beat this guy, it'll make the Jewish leaders happy, and then everything will kind of go away. So he tells the centurion, like the sergeant, he says, all right, just go beat him. And so Paul gets strapped up, the sergeant's getting ready to beat him, and Paul says, now, I have not been uh, convicted of a crime I'm a Roman citizen. Is it lawful to beat a Roman citizen who's not been convicted of a crime? And the sergeant's like, uh, no, let me go talk to my captain. 
So he gets, he gets back to the council and he says, uh, did you know this man was a, a Roman citizen? And so now the captains come back and he says to Paul, you're a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yes. And the captain said, well, I had to purchase my Roman citizenship. There's a variety of ways in which you become a citizen of Rome. One of them was purchasing it. He said, I had to purchase my Roman citizenship. And Paul's like, well, I was born a Roman citizen. <laughs> so, of course, at that time, he doesn't get beaten. Paul's a smart man. You know, you've got to play those cards while you have them. So, there's a group of, of, of Jewish men, though, that um, plot and commit themselves to uh, a contract. They say, we will not eat nor drink, there were 40 of them, we will not eat nor drink until we kill Paul. So they go back to the sergeant and they said, hey, um, you tell your boss that the, the Jewish court wants to hear Paul's testimony again, and then on the way, we're going to kill him. So there was a boy that overheard this who ends up being um, Paul's nephew. So he runs and tells Paul and says, hey man, they're going to try and kill you on your way to the Jewish court. And Paul said, look, you've got to go tell the captain this. So he does, and they hear it. And so the captain's like, well, we can't take a risk of that. In fact, this is just getting too much for us to handle. We're going to get Paul out of here out of Jerusalem and take them to the Roman capital, which was Caesarea. So they pack up, they get their horses, they get their chariots, and he, his name was Claudius, uh, he writes a letter to the governor, whose name was Felix, uh, unrelated, I think, to uh, Stephen and Jessica Felix, who attend church here. But uh, Felix, he writes, it's the funniest letter. Now this is the guy who had ordered Paul to be whipped. He's like, uh, Claudius to the right honorable Governor Felix. We have a Roman citizen who was being attacked by the Jews and I saved him. <laughs> and now I'm sending him to you uh, to, to judge as to what the issue is. As far as I could tell, there was nothing that he had done that would require imprisonment uh, or any other punishment. Interesting letter. So Paul ends up in Caesarea, and he makes his case. Um, the high priest brings an attorney uh, up to Caesarea, and there it's heard before Felix. And it's it's real interesting. It's it's like a episode of People's Court um, in that chapter of Acts. So the the attorney's like. Well, you're great, Felix, and man, how wonderful Rome is. This is a, a Jewish person, Jewish attorney. How wonderful Rome is. And we have so much peace uh, because you're here. But let us take this troublemaker back to Jerusalem and judge him ourselves. And then, of course, Paul gets to speak up. Um, oh, I left, I left a good part out of the story. Let me back up. A little flashback. When Paul was first taken into the Jewish court, uh, he's going to make this case uh, for Jesus. And so he's looking around in the courtroom, and there's some Sadducees who, of course, don't believe in the resurrection or in angels or in afterlife. And there's some Pharisees who do. 
So Paul's like, I'm here to talk about the resurrection. And this one Sadducee shouts out, there is no resurrection. But then this other Pharisee said, oh yes there is. And they get a fight going on between the two of them. So much so, they dismiss Paul. you got to love that part. So he, when he's in front of Felix now, the governor, he tells his testimony. He tells the testimony of, of who he was. He kind of grew up Jewish, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel, persecuted the church. But then he had a conversion. And he kind of retells, this is the third time he's retelling it, or I guess it's the third time it's told in Acts, it's the second time he's telling it, the story of his conversion. Well, no decision is made, and so Paul stays in jail. And then the governor uh, retires, resigns, is changed, and we get a new governor, a new Roman governor, and his name is Festus. And Festus is like, oh man, I've inherited this Jewish guy in jail and the folks in Jerusalem. This is two years later. The folks in Jerusalem still want him to be tried there. But then Agrippa, the king of Galilee, was coming to visit and he was Jewish. So he thought, well, maybe I'll let this Jewish king listen in. And so Paul tells the story again. And Agrippa is not persuaded. And Paul says at that time... As a Roman citizen, I have the right to be heard by the emperor. And sure enough, that's what results in him getting shipped to Rome. little bumpy trail on the way. There's a shipwreck, but he eventually gets to Rome. And he's in Rome, in jail, when he penned the letter that we call Ephesians. And it's in that letter in jail pinning the Ephesians that he writes for Christ is our peace in his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us what dividing wall that is the hostility between us certainly that dividing wall is a metaphor for the hostility and the division between Jews and Greeks. And he'll say later that this doesn't only reconcile us to each other, but having reconciled us to each other, it also reconciles us to God. But this is no mere metaphor for Paul, I think. There actually was a wall. We looked at it. It had a sign on it. And it said, if you come any further, you could lose your life. Paul was actually in jail having been accused of crossing lines of segregation. Which was, of course, the same charge against Dr. King. So herein lies the question. We could say of Paul and we could say of King that there's plenty of things that they did that looked more like troublemakers then it looked like peacemakers. They, they start these movements, they, they make these comments, they talk about hot topics. And wouldn't it be easier if we just avoided the conflict? Wouldn't it be easier if we just kind of ignored our differences? But that's not peacemaking. Peacemaking 
is the resolution of conflict. And you resolve the conflict by speaking truth to power, by resisting evil in nonviolent ways, by standing up for Christ, or maybe we could say standing up with Christ for the marginalized. Standing up with Christ because Christ is already standing up for the marginalized. We have plenty of walls that we have in our own lives. We have walls that we kind of build up sometimes between us and our families. We have walls that we build up between us and our children or us and our co-workers, us and our neighbors. We, we, we categorize and we differentiate in ways that just bring violence and separation. There was a huge wall, of course, built in Berlin after the Second World War, separating the city. It stood until November the 9th, 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell and it freedom once again happened and Germany was united. There's a wall that stands today between Palestine and Israel that makes it difficult to pass the border. When I first went to Jerusalem in 1991, Bethlehem was about 50% Christian and 50% Muslim. I went back two years ago, and it's about 20% Christian and 80% Muslim. And so I talked to my Christian friends there, and I said, what's going on? And they're like, it's too hard to stay. Our kids can't find jobs. The wall has kind of separated the economic flow, not just the foot traffic or the car traffic. We build walls and we, we separate us from each other. But Jesus came, so Paul says, to tear down dividing walls, to find ways for us to come together. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, black or white, Latino, Latina, Asian, Island Pacificer. Trying not to leave anybody out. Atlantis, Ian's. Jesus makes us into one people. Now, I might say this. It doesn't mean that um, Paul, and I would say also for King, we're not necessarily advocating for a uh, raceless, classless, genderless, uh, nationless people. I mean, what are we going to be? Some kind of transparent, generic humans? I mean, I am a man. I am white. I'm middle-aged. I'm Appalachian-American. Yeah. I'm an American. Right? Floridian. Polk Countyan. It is who I am. I don't, I don't have to be neutral. That's not the goal. Like, I don't have to become a woman. I don't have to become a person of a different race. I don't have to become a person of a different nation. The argument here is not for uniformity. The argument is for unity. It's that though we be different, we are one in Christ. And if Christ calls us to be one, who are we to say that we should be different? 
There are plenty of other walls that are in our countries, significant ones. One in particular I want you to hear a bit more about uh, from two of our a brother and sister, our congregants, uh, Joey and Alyssa Norman. As, uh, as you said, I am Alyssa. And I'm Joey, if you can fill in that blank. Um, and we're missionaries to Cyprus. So um, if you don't know where Cyprus is, it's a tiny little country in the middle of the Mediterranean. Um, it's flanked by Turkey and North Africa and it's Southern more. Europe all around it. So it's this tiny little speck, almost insignificant on a global scale, right? There's only a million people on the whole island. It's smaller than the distance from Tampa to Orlando. Um, and so until about 1960, it's a territory of Great Britain. And there are these two divided sides of this island that just fight so much that Great Britain says, yeah, you know, we're not going to deal with you guys anymore. And they give them their independence just so they don't have to deal with these fighting sides. And they're this Greek southern side and this Turkish northern side. And so this fighting escalates more and more until Greece backs a coup on the island to try to get a strong man in office and get them aligned with Greece and try to bring peace their way on the island. And since about 20% of the island is Turkish in heritage, Turkey sends in troops to occupy the northern half of the island. So in 1974, there's a formal UN-sanctioned like, border that runs straight across the whole island, splitting it in half. Um, Turkey is the only country in the world that recognizes the northern Turkish Cyprus as, its, as a sovereign island. And so on this tiny island, in this tiny little capital city that's split right down the middle, there's an old market that you're walking through. And so you, we came in on the Greek side. And you're walking through this market that's been so westernized. It's an ancient, like medieval market filled in with like H&M and McDonald's, <laughs> just like everything Western you can imagine. You're speaking English. Everyone yeah. there speaks English. Everyone there also speaks Greek. You're using the euro. Everyone is Greek Orthodox. And then the shops start thinning out and you get to this tiny little hut that literally only two people can stand in, and you give them your passport, and they don't actually stamp it, they just want to track who's going from side to side. And you walk through four just completely deserted blocks, and you step out on this other side, and everything is different. Um, you're in the middle of a traditional Arabic market, Everyone speaks Arabic. Uh, they're selling like pashminas, and you definitely can't get a cheeseburger over there. <laughs> and uh, everything is just so entrenched um, on these two sides. It's the perfect image of the clash between the East and the West, the clash between Islam and Orthodoxy. And so you're in the middle of this tiny little market, and you see. Uh, where these people on this tiny little island have entrenched them, like, themselves so much into the Greek and Turkish identity rather than the Cypriot. Yeah. And so where we will be is in that divided city. And so this is Nicosia. And as you can see, here is the, you know, the buffer zone 
basically, between the two sides. And so our location will actually be about half a mile away from this, division, this great divide. Um, and here we will plant our church and open our coffee shop as a place of peace and unity in the name of Christ at the most basic level possible, which is a cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> um, and here, we just hope that this place would serve as um, an open door to anyone of any nationality, of any, you know, whatever they like to call themselves, that they can get their good cup of coffee and sit around the table and, and live in peace. And so what we are so excited about is that Currently, there are discussions um, between the, the Greek, Greek leaders, Turkish leaders, UN, uh, UK, and Cypriot leaders are sitting around a table and um, speaking peace. They are working out a solution to get this divide out of this country. And so here in this, in this city, there's this overwhelming feeling of unity and peace amongst the people. And they are so excited. And what a, there's no better time than now to go and speak such the beautiful name of Christ um, as he brings us all together. And so if you would like to hear more information about what we are doing, or if you would like to um, partner with us, we would love to talk with you and get you coffee um, and uh, let you in on what God is doing here. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't be more prouder. Um, blessed are the peacemakers, going to the world to find places of conflict and offering peace and conflict resolution, offering coffee to people. What if they're Muslims? Well, they probably drink coffee. What if they're Christians? They probably drink coffee. What if they're Cyprian but non-religious? Well, they probably can drink coffee. So yeah, I would I encourage you to, to pray for the Normans, to find out more information, to financially support them. As we come to a close uh, this morning, remember this is the season of epiphany, a manifestation, revelation of God. When you experience the epiphany of Jesus Christ, when Christ is revealed to you, you will have peace for he is the Prince of Peace. But as the Prince of Peace gives you peace, gives us peace, he also calls us to be peacemakers, which we seek to do.